Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Dan Huger. Eric Cohn is out this week. Thank you for listening. I want to ask you that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. This week, I'm joined by Dylan Palman, Executive Editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and Research Fellow at the Acton Institute. I'm also joined by Noah Gould, Alumni and Student Programs Manager at the Acton Institute. Today, we'll be talking about the politics of AI, both its politically correct foibles, as well as more academic and empirical examinations of its biases. We'll also be talking about a scandal which has damaged the credibility of the Hugo Awards, has deference to and potential influence by the Chinese Communist Party over last year's award destroyed the credibility of what was once science fiction and fantasy's most prestigious award. But first, however, I want to bring our discussion to my alma mater, Hillsdale College, For those of you listening at home, I am wearing a Hillsdale College piece of gear this morning. Um, uh, My interests will become apparent as our conversation unfolds, but that's why I have Noah and Dylan here to counteract me. Last, because last week there was a rumble in the Christian College jungle to which Hillsdale College was a part. The other part of this uh, was coming out of Covenant College, a professor of history there, Jay Green, who wrote an essay in Current on Hillsdale College questioning its Christian college bona fides, titled Selling Quote-Unquote Christian Hillsdale. To this piece, he received substantial pushback from Hillsdale College faculty and alumni. Later last week, Professor Green published a follow-up essay, Some Additional Thoughts About Hillsdale, also in Current, to clarify his conception of Hillsdale College, Hillsdale College's faculty, and his definition of what constitutes a Christian college. It also supplies an acknowledgment of an error of fact in the first piece and an acknowledgment of improper framing in characterizing Hillsdale College's trajectory as, quote unquote, Christian nationalist. Um, We'll link to both pieces in the show notes, and it's very important for listeners, if they want to dive deep into this, to read both pieces, to get fully Professor Green's perspective and his concerns. He raises some interesting and legitimate ones worth talking about. That's why we're talking about it here. There are others that I don't find so compelling. But gentlemen, I'm going to turn it over to you and ask you sort of what your thoughts on this were from the outside of this controversy. Uh, Noah, let's, let's start with you. Yes, this is an interesting debate because it really comes down to how do you think about a Christian college or university? So a professor uh, from Covenant is going to have a specific kind of flavor on what a Christian college or university is. So you could take that as, okay, it's connected to a denomination in a certain official manner. By that definition, only a certain amount of universities in the U.S. are going to be Christian. Now, if you look at like the Council of Christian Colleges and Universities, which is kind of the official, here's a Christian university in the U.S., 
That is a really disparate group. There's a lot of different types of institutions in there. And it's important to note that Hillsdale College is not a member exactly, of that yep. organization. So if, if that's your definition, then you know Hillsdale isn't a Christian college if it's just any member of that uh, kind of coalition. Uh, but what's interesting here is that Hillsdale has kind of had some shift in how it's described itself. And then I think there's an interesting distinction between how the administration might describe itself or market itself, and then how students or alumni might describe kind of their experience on campus. So I wonder if uh, this piece is reacting more to kind of the public persona of Hillsdale, more than the kind of on the ground what you're getting as an education. Little historical context for our listeners, and this is where I start to unpack the Hillsdale lore. Hillsdale College is founded in 1844, the same year that Pabst Blue Ribbon wins that Blue Ribbon, making it Pabst Blue Ribbon. So it's an old organization, but it's been around for a long time. It's been around so long that Pabst won a Blue Ribbon. You know, we've we've had advances in beer making technology since then. I still love Pabst in old style, but back on track. It was founded by Free Will Baptists, but When the college was incorporated, it was not incorporated with any explicit denominational ties. It was non-sectarian. It was open to folks of all faiths, open to folks of all races, which was not the norm in 1844. That's a very proud legacy that the college has. It did, however, maintain a faith requirement for the president of the university and the board of trustees that they be free will Baptists until 1907 when that was suspended. And since then, there's a, there was a long period in which um, there's nothing and there's no formal organizational ties with, uh, with uh, this uh, organization. And uh, although recently in its mission statement, my recently, I think I mean, I think this was 2014, 2015, Hillsdale College explicitly added Christian into its mission statement. So that's just a little background. The background of the marketing of the college goes back to President George Roach, who was president, became president in 1971. And he came from the world of FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education, big ties in libertarian and conservative movements. And he brought with himself uh, a communications director by the name of Lou Rockwell, who was uh, instrumental in the founding of the Mises Institute. He founded a lot of communications organs of the college, like Imprimus, uh, which is their most widely distributed thing. And there are a lot of things there that talk about subjects of interest to people that are interested in the conservative libertarian movement in the United States. So that's where that marketing presentation might mm-hmm. be coming from. And Not- I know people back home in Massachusetts who have really no connection to Hillsdale. They don't have uh, kids there. They don't really have any formal connection, but they read Imprimis. Mm-hmm. And they know about Hillsdale from that. So that's their conception of what Hillsdale is. Is It's a magazine that kind of talks about the institution that's connected to it. Yeah. So my funny Hillsdale College story is the first time I heard about it was on Michigan Radio, our local NPR affiliate in which it mentioned a liberal arts college in Michigan, small grade student teacher to ratio, student to faculty ratio, all that sort of stuff. And then when I got to Hillsdale College and my family members signed up for Imprimis because they were impressed with the education that I was receiving there, my grandfather, whenever I would call him, would say, did you go to that speech by so-and-so? And I'd be like, I was not aware they were on campus. And then I would get the latest in premise, and it was a speech that they gave in Washington, D.C., 
or somewhere else because colleges will host events around the country for fundraising purposes, that sort of stuff. So that's – with all that, we're going to throw it back to Dylan because Dylan had some had some other interesting insights to this piece. Yeah, so there's – I guess I have, I have two separate points, but I'm going to start by just saying – you know, I'm I'm a person of faith and piety, and so I did the pious thing and consulted the prophets and oracles of our day, by which I ne- mean the Bing Copilot AI. And I asked it whether Hillsdale College is a Christian college. Um, and, of course, it gave a wishy-washy answer, which AIs are prone to do with this kind of a question. But it gave me five criteria, okay, which I think is really fascinating to run down, not only in the case of Hillsdale, but I am a, a graduate of Kuiper College, which is a reformed Bible college here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, And I think it's interesting to kind of think about uh, these criteria, even though this is in no way official or anything like that. They're just interesting. So there's five. Uh, The first one is the historical and current and current affiliation of the college with a Christian denomination or tradition. So Hillsdale identifies as Christian, but it is not affiliated with any Christian tradition currently. Yes. Um, Kuiper College, where I went, uh, is not affiliated with any denomination, but it is re- affiliated with the Reformed tradition and accepts not only the three forms of unity of the Reformed churches, but also the Westminster uh, Catechism or Confession, uh, which is, you know, there's that even between... That makes the Sabbath confusing, doesn't not? Well, I mean, frankly, there's there are some differences within the three forms of unity in the Reformed church. I... I, uh, I it, Calvinist listeners will either be very disappointed or they'll be like, oh, he knows us uh, when I said that. But like there there are. There are some things that are just not the same uh, between the Belgian Confession and the Heidelberg uh, Catechism, and that's part of their tradition. So I presume those things are not as important um, uh, for that tradition, but but it's still a standard, right? Um, so I think that's interesting. So I guess by this, Kuiper, one point, Hillsdale, Half point? I don't know. Zero points? Zero points um, since 1907, but before 1907, right, a point. Right, because the historical side. So, yeah, I don't know if there's a half point there. All right, so number two, the presence and content of religious courses in the core curriculum or as electives. Um, my understanding, is, as you've mentioned, is there's quite a bit. Um, not quite the level of the, the Christian College Association where you have to have uh, Old and New Testament Bible survey courses as requir- required courses. Uh, uh, props to Anthony Bradley for pointing that out uh, to us last week. Um, but uh, that, I, I don't know, you can, you can weigh in as far as how Christian were your courses or how Christian were, was the required cu- curriculum. So we'll give, when we had this conversation, Dylan and I had this conversation with Dr. Bradley last week, and I pointed out, you know, in a, in, when I was at Hillsdale, and the core curriculum has developed since I've been at Hillsdale and now includes an explicit course in theology that was not there mm. when I was there. But when I was there, we began our history of the West and the world, where Western heritage uh, sort of uh, core component by reading Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, and St. Augustine. And the idea was what is the relationship of Christianity to history, particularly its preceding history? And so when you start a history survey course with that sort of investigation with major theologians in the Christian tradition, trying to make sense of history itself from a Christian perspective, I think it counts. When in the English curriculum, you had us read the Gospel of Matthew, the the Gospel of Matthew, Genesis, and Job, like those are 
that's one of the bigger gospels. That is one of the bigger books of the Pentateuch. Is the biggest book of the Pentateuch, I believe. Yeah, I believe it's the longest gospel as well. And and Job is very long in terms of the wisdom literature. Like that speaks to me as a commitment. Now, if according to Hoyle, you have to talk about Habakkuk in order for it to be a Christian education, well, I'm I'm sorry, um, I play by house rules, not uh, not according to Hoyle. On this question, I'm a, I'm a lumper, not a splitter. But that, that'll give you, give you some okay. perspective. Okay. Uh, number three, the proportion and diversity of faculty and students who identify as Christian or practice Christianity. Um, this was very high at Kuiper, as might be expected at a Bible college. Um, there was no chapel requirement, but chap- there was three days a week chapel, uh, and it was usually well attended. Um, you know, probably also various organizations and that sort of thing there as well. But um, Bible everywhere. Every teacher prayed uh, before the class started. Um, so what was your experience at Hillsdale? So Hillsdale, it was overwhelmingly Christian student body. The largest student organization was InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I was on the board of Catholic Society. There was an Orthodox Christian Fellowship uh, that had begun a couple of years before I was there. I had some very good friends involved with that organization. Uh, there was a chapel, and there was a chaplain, and there was daily prayer in this chapel. Now, granted, this is before Hillsdale College's new grand chapel, which is huge. This chapel seated maybe 20. Okay. But every weekday morning, there was a priest from one of the local Anglican congregations that led lead students who wanted to to morning prayer. Catholic Society, we utilized that for rosary once a week. Orthodox Christian Fellowship did an evening prayer liturgy that I attended many times. Uh, we had faculty lead catechism studies over lunch for the Catholic students. Um, and you had faculty that would serve as, you know, if not spiritual directors, really mentors. And it was really, you didn't have prayer before each and every class, but prayers happened in class um, more spontaneously. So okay. I, would, I, w- okay. I would say that Hillsdale counts. You know, there were, yeah. there's not a faith test at mm-hmm. Hillsdale. Uh, for students, and it's my understanding that standard practice in, according to Hoyle, Christian colleges that belong to this organization, there is not a faith test for the student body. Yeah, Calvin at least uh, is um, very, you know, proud to tell people they have Muslim students yes. at Calvin. Um, so. Um, and there uh, were Muslim students at Hillsdale when I was yeah. there. There were Jewish students at Hillsdale when I was there. There were atheist students at Hillsdale when I was there. Um, okay, number four, the availability and participation of campus ministries and worship opportunities. I feel like we kind of covered that. Um, five, the influence and expression of Christian values and principles in the college's mission, vision, and culture. Uh, again, this was pretty pretty thorough, though not so much in the marketing. We could talk about Kuiper's marketing some other time. Um, not always the case in the marketing, but definitely uh, in mission, vision, and culture Um I think everything, you know, they're named for Abraham Kuyper, and they very much tried to take on uh, his vision of things. Um, What about Hillsdale? So Hillsdale had that formal change to the mission statement that says explicitly Christian. That happened in, I think, 2015. Okay. Um, Prior to that, it had always been a part of its curriculum and its stated materials that it was talking about the Judeo-Christian tradition. So your your mileage may vary on that. But it claimed to be perpetuating a line of theological thinking in the world through its core curriculum. So 
Okay. Yes. Although, although again, lumping and not splitting. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, okay. So maybe like three and a half points for Hillsdale based on the the Bing co-pilot uh, Christian College test here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I bring this up in part because I think it's interesting and it gives some important context for those like me who did not go to Hillsdale, don't really know what the experience was like um, other than secondhand. Um, but also one of the things that I thought was interesting about uh, the first article, uh, what was I'm sorry, what was the author's name? Uh, professor Jay Green. He's a so, uh, professor of history at Covenant College. So Green's article, he made this distinction between uh, like confessional Christian colleges and civilizational Christian colleges. And he was basically arguing that a confessional Christian school maybe has this, you know, affiliation, with a denomination or tradition, and it's putting kind of the, the Christian theology or faith first. Whereas the civilizational Christian school may have plenty of Christian things about it, but it's almost a, a, a utilitarian um, affirmation of Christianity, that Christianity has been valuable for Western civilization and therefore ought to be promoted for the sake of the advancement of Western civilization. Um, did you find that... A helpful distinction. I, I guess I, I always like it when someone tries to define their terms, especially in some magazine article. Like that, that doesn't happen often enough. So I'm, I yeah. want to give them props for that. Um, and and I was curious if you think you know is that accurate? Is it helpful? Um, does it fit Hillsdale or not? So maybe this is because my... technically, just to be clear, technically his claim in the first article, even though he was criticized for various things, as you mentioned, his claim was not that Hillsdale wasn't Christian. His claim was that Hillsdale was a civilizational Christian college as opposed to or distinct from a confessional Christian one. So I think that there is – so confessionalization is is a difficult problem. Yes. Uh, one that I've approached in my writings before unrelated to this because it's something that comes up when institutions want to preserve a faith perspective. And it's difficult. Sometimes institutions will come up with their own statements of faith that runs the risks of creating their own religious, uh, their own religious movements that are actually, you know, the, the, the spirit of it might have been to preserve this particular religious tradition, but you end up creating your own. Um, the other is to appropriate, as Calvin College does, as Kuiper College does, uh, you know, Calvin College does this with the three forms of unity. The problem with that is when the rubber meets the road, it gets very difficult. Like Calvin has this very long document on what it means to be a university and confessional, and it's like 50 plus pages, and it's very thoughtfully considered because they realize that the university is not a church and that what they're trying to do is adapt a churchly governing document to an educational context. So that's just plain old difficult. So those caveats aside, you know, in that in those senses, Hillsdale is not a confessional school. It does not have those problems. But I have a very hard time conceiving of Christianity apart from Christian civilization. I have a very hard time conceiving of Hinduism apart from Hindu civilization. And I have a very hard time of conceiving of Islam apart from Islamic civilization. These religions exist in the world. Yeah, I think a really interesting thing about this this kind of distinction that he's trying to make is that that distinction really exists only if you see those two things in competition with each other. 
So he makes this claim that once you become a civilization, you know, as opposed to a confessional school, then you can no longer critique culture effectively because you're just kind of buying whatever Western civilization is offering. I don't think that actually reflects what is happening on the ground. To bring in another institution, I attended Grove City College, which I think interestingly hits both uh, definitions that he offers here. It both has this kind of Western civilization, kind of you could call it conservative uh, arc to a lot of its studies and is a Christian institution kind of not – doesn't have an official confession, but you know, the faculty are Christian and the administration are. It, it has that very prominently. And Grove City is a member of this association. Is so it? I, is it? Or I'm, I'm not actually 100 percent sure about the membership. They may be uh, a part of another kind of regional accreditation. So I'm not sure if they're members here. I couldn't find it easily. I need to more do more digging there. Okay. Um, but I think they kind of fall in both of these camps that he's describing. And I think there, it doesn't have to be necessarily in conflict. There's some back and forth that happens in this conversation. The kind of study of Western civilization, looking at it, is not kind of this set of ideological suppositions that we're all just accepting, uh, especially if you kind of have a more Kirkian understanding of what the project looks like. Uh, so there's a I always had interplay in my courses at Grove City with professors, you know, okay, let's look at this thinker, let's look at this kind of theological, and the back and forth interplay is really interesting. So I don't think they necessarily have to be in tension here. You have a very interesting back and forth between, and part of me strikes me as like, so there are religions, and I brought up Hinduism and I brought up Islam earlier. Islam, according to devout Muslims, has a core that is not historical. The Quran is delivered by God himself in the form we very much have it now, according to devout Muslims. According to devout Hindus, the Vedas are co-eternal with the creation itself. I have even heard uh, Jews mm-hmm. talk about the Torah having similar sort of transcendental status. One of the things that Christians are about is about entering history because their God enters history in the form of Jesus Christ, and he comes in the fullness of time. And the question of that and what that means and how to unpack that touches on these debates. And this is something that I learned at Hillsdale College from Brad Berzer. The fact that Jesus is born a Jew— The fact that Jesus is born into a Hellenized world, the fact that Jesus is born into a Roman world is not um, incidental. It is not accidental. It is not a mistake. There's a purpose behind this. And Dylan Dylan is somebody who I've learned an immense amount from about how much of the New Testament literature borrows, presupposes, depends on... Greek philosophy that precedes it. And this is why someone like Clement of Alexandria in those early readings at Hillsdale says things like Plato is a saint because that is a thread of the Christian tradition. Now, not all Christians believe that, but there have been from the very earliest days. Clement gives the most plausible version of that, actually. So uh, really, the, well, the the typical thing comes from Justin Martyr, where he basically says, you know, Plato had to have read Moses because all of his good ideas we can find in the Torah, you know, in the Old Testament 
um, long before Plato ever lived. Um, Clement has a far subtler argument, which I actually still think has some plausibility to it. He just charts the number of citations in Plato and other Greek authors to ancient Near Eastern sources. So they talk about learning from like Egyptian wisdom and, you know, Syrian. And, you know, so his whole point is like, you have this kind of dependence on Semitic ancient Near Eastern thought as at least a, a significant influence. And that one's a little harder to actually shake, uh, which I think is fascinating. Um, a point I was going to add to build on what Noah was saying, I, I think there is a really interesting question for Green. And and I would love it, you know, he can tweet at me or whatever if he has an answer. But but is are these things separable? Because that that does actually raise the question of is his conception of Christianity or specifically confessional Christianity something that is uh, uh, separable from the historical conditions in which it came about? Um, and I I'm skeptical that it can be. Um, because all of these confessions have dates <laughs> as when they were, you know, the Belgic confession uh, was written to try to say, hey, we Protestants were not anarchists like the Anabaptists. We reformed. Uh, we're peaceful like the Catholics or what? I mean, it was kind of like Catholics and reform, but not those Anabaptists. You can be okay with us. I mean, that's like the point of it. Uh, it's written to the king, uh, you know, whatever. Um, and then you go to, you know, the Heidelberg Catechism. That's a different historical context. You have people trying to, you know, settle some of the differences between Protestant groups and come up with a confession and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you go to the Canons of Dort, different context. You have the Remonstrance, you have Ar Remonstrance, you have Arminius, you have two different camps within the Reformed tradition uh, that they kind of write it in an ambiguous way so as not to favor one or the other. There's all these kind of historical civilizational uh, factors, um, and these become civilizational documents, right? They, they have influence. Uh, they, they basically are constitutional um, within churches that ascribe to them, but they also influence the idea of liberal constitutions. I mean, we have, uh, we talk about America being a nation with a creed, uh, speaking of the Declaration of Independence. So we have like a confessional document. Um, we have uh, maybe not quite a catechism. Maybe we need one. Uh, maybe that's what our education system is supposed to be for. We have a um, citizenship chest that has do. questions and has answers that are yeah, expected. Right. Um, but, you know, we have, we have these kind of things that are supposed to anchor our polity in, in not just procedures, but in ideals. Um, and that's how these functioned, you know, they, that is smaller scale, I suppose. Uh, but there is still a civilizational function that they want to preserve the existence of their Christian traditions within a particular civilizational context. And they also wanted it to influence. I mean, it, literally, the Belgian Confession is addressed to a king, or at least it was written to pass on to him. I have to look at if there's like a preamble or whatever. But like the whole point was we got to get this to the politicians to affect our current civilization. Um, so that's really interesting. Now, I don't know that that necessarily means that his distinction is a distinction without a difference, but I would love for some further clarification because I do have a, a similar kind of um, hesitation as Noah there that it just seems like, it seems like there is uh, a presumption that you have this ethereal at purely abstract confessional Christianity, and then you have civilizational Christianity, which is, you know, 
so bound to history as to be like stuck in a deterministic you know, historical social dialectic or something Marxist like that and um, or something even just as he put it kind of combative that you have to, you know, take on a sort of culture war stance to things or, or that kind of thing. And I don't know if that's necessarily the case either. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or if I should. <laughs> I have many thoughts, okay. but Noah has something on the tip of his oh, tongue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, oh, good. I just want to pivot a little bit from, I mean, I think we could kind of parse the nuance here of what's Christian or not. And I think there's some really interesting um, kind of lines of thought. But one of the questions that's kind of raised by this conversation is, okay, if you're a Christian parent, what kind of things should you be looking at in a Christian college or university? And I think this conversation gets at a few of those things. Uh, you know, having professors integrate uh, kind of historical faith into the classroom, that's really important having kind of the life on the ground being vibrant, the Christian life, what does community look like? I think that can be found at a lot of different types of institutions. And I think kind of parents need to be careful about here's the marketing I'm getting, especially with all the, the market pressure on institutions to kind of get students in the door so they can stay alive. What is the actual life on the ground? And then also um, another theme I think we've touched on here is some idea of rooted historically, I think, is important for a lot of these institutions that they're not just um, kind of a flash in the pan type of uh, content that they're giving. This may be the difference between Green's kind of conception and my own is that I think he sees the culture war side of what like Arne is doing and in, in some of his public persona. But what's actually happening on the ground is much more rooted historical faith. I mean, Covenant is a PCA school, so it seems to fit with their idea of how theology works is uh, rooted historically, that kind of thing. So those are kind of what I would want to see a parent think about when they're saying, you know, how is my kid going to thrive here more than just the top line marketing? Those are some great so I, things to I, think through. Well, another parents. thing that you point out, Dan, maybe you can talk more about this, is I don't think their marketing material is actually aimed at recruitment. I mean, maybe part of it is to get students in the door, but what's interesting about Hillsdale is it is it is a conservative slash Christian, if you want to give it that label, success story in higher ed. They have an almost billion dollar endowment, which, as you mentioned, they grew over the last 20 years. Um, so that marketing is probably more for donors than it is for parents and prospective students. And that's really interesting as well. And that if you're in a different context and you're in a tuition-dependent institution, you might just presume all marketing is the same as your school would be, that you're trying to reach out to students and, and their parents and you're trying to show them, here's what our school has to offer, when in fact Hillsdale's maybe doing something different. So what I have here is two delightful conversations that I would like to have in the future, maybe with bringing <laughs> some other guests in to talk about more flesh out what is a Christian college in this very big, grand scale? And to sit down with some people with some different perspectives about that. And then the other is, how do you finance liberal learning in the 21st century? And Hillsdale College has certainly found a model to do that. Now, it's not the only model, and it's a model that can be investigated and interrogated and is best done, so I think, with somebody currently at the college on the ground. And that's, and that's something that we can, we, can, we can work towards arranging a program like that in the future as well. But now I want to turn from Bing 
and it's ChatGPT and how it's assisted us with this program to Google, who this month relaunched and rebranded its generative artificial intelligence chatbot Bard as Gemini. Folks eager to try it soon found it very, very strange. It had some quirks. Users reported and tweeted a flurry of Gemini-generated images that featured gender and racial diversity in very curious places. Among medieval Vikings, Wehrmacht soldiers in 1943, even the Pope in Rome. Uh, in response, Google promised it was, quote, working to improve these kinds of depictions immediately, end quote. And Google paused Gemini's ability to generate images of people. In a happy coincidence for Fabio Modici, Vladimir Pino Nato, and Victor Rodriguez, they have recently published a paper in the journal Public Choice titled, quote, more human than human, measuring chat GPT political bias, end quote. This is hot now. This is officially something that is leaked off into the public conversation. While the story with Google's Gemini is developing, this paper on chat GPT, exploring a similar set of concerns, examines, quote, bias involving race, gender, religion, and political orientation, unquote, empirically. In their abstract, they, quote, find robust evidence that ChatGPT presents a significant and systemic political bias towards Democrats in the United States, Lula in Brazil, and the Labor Party in the United Kingdom. End quote. Dylan, what do you make of this. Yeah. So uh, once again, I consulted uh, Bing just out of a curiosity and because I thought it'd be very topical. Um, and and I think it's interesting that Bing basically knows about, they actually cited the study, the Stanford um, study. Um, so it got that. And then there's another one um, which has been reported on as, oh, there's actually a significant spectrum of political biases across different models. So for example, um, OpenAI's ChatGTP and GPT-4 were the most left-wing libertarian, while Meta's Llama was the most right-wing authoritarian. Uh, what it doesn't say, but I know to be the case, because people have pulled up the, you know, the the political quadrant, uh, the old Nolan chart. Yes, where you have you have um, authoritarian. Um, on one side, and what what's the other one? Uh, libertarian. Libertarian. Yeah, libertarian, authoritarian, and then you have, uh, I think they use the terms liberal, economically liberal, and economically conservative. Economically progressive would probably be more accurate, I suppose. Um, but uh, but they, they do that. Every single one of these were in the bottom left quadrant. Um, so when they say that one is more right-wing authoritarian, it was not even on the right. It means it is it is, it is the closest to the center. What it, yes, what it looked like to me was actually uh, the spectrum of views uh, in the 2019 Democratic primary between the <laughs> candidates. I mean, it was like literally, it was exactly, I was like, oh, there's Bernie, there's Beto, there's, you know, so ba basically Llama's Beto, um, and like, you know, um, which is weird, because you'd, you'd think, and fun, actually, I believe, what was, uh, what's the, um, the, the Twitter 
AI. Is it Roku or no? That's not it. It's Dork or <laughs> Karen Bork. I can't remember the name. Grok. 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 So Grok Fun Mode is like the farthest to the left. Um, which you'd think that so that I don't know who that would be most progressive. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't farthest to the bottom in terms of the economics, but it was farthest to the left socially. Um, and I don't know who that would be, but you'd think the funnest should be the guy who's like skateboarding. But anyway, uh, maybe this metaphor is going too far. But um, but the point being, uh, I do think even that that kind of less academic test does tell us something that even though there is a spectrum and you, you people will probably encounter this if they bring this up. Uh, no, there's actually a spectrum of biases depending on the model. Yes. There's a spectrum of views, just like there's a spectrum of views among Democratic presidential candidates. Right. But that is still a bias. Um, and that is that is a real concern. Um, it does. To me, I, I will say, just like uh, using, you know, reading The New York Times, um, there's a lot of value. I've, I've gotten some show notes <laughs> of using AI today. Um, there's a lot of value to be gotten, but you need to have a discerning mind when you use a tool like this, just like you need to have uh, you know, some critical thinking skills when you read the New York Times or some other. Like These publications do, in fact, report the news. You can find factual information there, um, but they do have their own biases. Um, I think this research is great in that it's at the very least giving us some transparency. So we know what to expect from each of these models. So then you can take it with a grain of salt and you can say, well, wait a minute. Um, you know, maybe I need to change my prompt a little bit to try to, to get at the information I want um, rather than something that unfortunately has been skewed uh, by the designers. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with the idea of transparency. I think it's helpful to back up a little bit and say, you know, the difference between kind of reading a New York Times article and the kind of answers generated by either a large language model or image generators is that the model doesn't really understand what it's saying. It's predictive. Yes. So it's just giving you kind of a string of words that are associated based on the data that was inputted and then the parameters that the kind of maker said, okay, don't don't say these things. So when I first saw the news about Gemini, I think I thought back to the early large language models that we saw and they just took the entire internet and just input it into uh, the model, what you got was incredibly racist comments. Like, that was yeah. that was the baseline for pretty much everything that this model was spitting out, was just reflecting what uh, kind of chat rooms look like, which is a majority of the kind of content on the internet. So what I think this is... Uh, it, from one aspect, is an overcorrection from early problems they had with the model. They're really afraid that the model will start just reflecting the average interaction on the internet. Because that's what it is. It's a really great average machine that I can yeah, say, here's Google, what the average human is going to say Google about in this. particular, I believe, several years ago made a chat, an AI chat bot that they put on social media, which would like learn from the way in which people interact with it. And of course... There's a lot of trolls on social media who immediately trained it to be like a Nazi sex bot. Like it was it was like as bad as you could possibly imagine. Um, so that is a really interesting point. Like the Internet itself as a whole may have its own bias that is worth trying to do the work to avoid. Yeah. So what we got is an incredibly risk averse. These these large social media companies, we think of them as kind of the rule breakers and the upstarts. They no longer are. They are very risk averse. They don't want to upset their brand or come out with 
with some content that is really objectionable. So they've created these parameters to avoid kind of racist comments. And what you get is Vikings of every race and culture. Yeah, I saw conf- uh, a diverse uh, battalion of Confederate soldiers. It it, dem- it, it <laughs> generated at one point. Yeah, so you get these kind of wacky outpourings. So I think transparency is good because there's going to be some back and forth here, but I don't necessarily buy the argument that it's just 100% kind of woke social media. I think it's risk-averse, large, left-leading social media uh, creators that have created parameters that will kind of disallow objectionable content. There's a lot, a lot, a lot that we are going to be returning to over the next years with AI. This is an extremely valuable tool. One of the things that helps is part of part of the problem with with this sort of putting your fingers on the scale that might be done for all of the right reasons is it's not immediately transparent that it's being done. Because many of these models operate where you give a query and they give an answer. One of the things that's been great about Microsoft's implementation of what is essentially the chat GPT-4 model under the hood of Bing is that it cites sources for its arguments that allows that, you know, just like you need media literacy, quote unquote, you need AI literacy. And, and Microsoft, I think, is leading the way in that transparency to the, to the end user. Yeah, and I, I, I use uh, Bing, not to make this an advertisement for that or anything like that, but I use it precisely for that reason because sometimes you will ask it a question and it'll give you something that seems benign and factual, but then it'll cite a source and you realize, oh, its source is four years old. Um, it was pulling the best it could find, but I really need like this year's data or something like that. So I need to do my own Googling or I need to ask, a, again, a, a more narrow prompt or something like that. Um, whereas if you're just kind of putting in a prompt, seeing what it says and taking it as, oh, that must be how it is, you know, there is going to, there is a real, and I mean, if you ask any of these AIs, they'll be like, oh yeah, we spread misinformation all the time. Like it's self-aware. Well, not really. It's actually neither intelligent nor conscious, but, uh, (laughs) but it it will tell you that AI has a tendency to spread misinformation. And this is one of those reasons it's doing the best it can with the algorithm, the parameters and the data, it has, um, but there are limits to what that can accomplish. Absolutely. We want to turn next, we want a little interlude because there's also an artistic dimension to this. And since large language models have really emerged, Dylan and I have had extended conversations on whether AI can produce art. And I think the performance artist, singer-songwriter Grimes has definitively settled this question in my favor when she tweeted out the other day. She had originally been very critical of this Gemini image generation. But she says, I am retracting my statements about the Gemini art disaster. It is, in fact, a masterpiece of performance art, even if unintentional. True gain-of-function art. Art is a virus, unthinking, unintentional, contagious, offensive to all, comforting to none, so totally divorced from meaning, intention, desire, and humanity that it's accidentally a conceptual masterpiece. A perfect example of uh, head, 
heedless runaway bureaucracy and the worst tendencies of capitalism, an unabashed simulacra of activism, the shining star of corporate surrealism, an extremely underrated genre, by the way. Supreme, the supreme goal of the artist is to challenge the audience. Not sure I've seen such a strong reaction to art in my life, spurring thousands of discussions about the meaning of art, politics, humanity, history, education, AI safety, how to govern a company, how to approach the current state of social unrest, how to, how to do the right thing regarding the collective trauma, skipping to the end now, art for no one, by no one, art whose only audience is the collective pathos, incredible, worthy of the MoMA. Dylan, response. Uh, well, I, I mean, I just fundamentally disagree that the purpose of the art is to purpose of art is to challenge, make a statement, challenge people, that sort of thing. I think there is a subgenre of art uh, called marketing, in which it is supposed to make a statement. There's even a subgenre of that called propaganda, which I use in a neutral way that's supposed to make political statements and political arguments um, and rhetoric. Um, but I don't think that's all art, and I think something is lost when we divorce art from beauty. And, I mean, this makes me, an, uh, you know, uh, speaking from that, that kind of classical Western Christian civilization background, uh, but I think it was right. Um, and that doesn't mean there's no nuance that can be added and no extra, you know, interesting uh, possibilities with new technology and our, you know, I mean, the the camera changed painting that, you know, you have all this sort of stuff. Uh, you have the AI now being pretty revolutionary. Um, but I think one thing that, that and I, I've, I'm working on very slowly co-authoring an op-ed with a friend. We'll see if I we ever get through that. I hope we do. Uh, but I, I previously wrote an academic paper with him on uh, art and aesthetics. And, and one of his contributions, his background is theological aesthetics, um, is that there's something of that that when we try to define the word art, um, we're actually not being precise enough. Um, you have an artist who creates artwork. Art is the skill by which they do that. Uh, it's, in fact, classically an intellectual virtue. Um, and it's something that has this objective-subjective kind of quality to it, um, that there's something of the artist in the art. So I love her statement that is art by no one for no one. It, there's no one in this art, in, in a sense. Um, and, and I think that actually makes it fail, in my opinion, to really be art. Uh, I was at a conference. Um, it was the Kuiper Conference last year, and one of the panels was on uh, Calvinism and art or neo-Calvinism and art. Uh, and one, during the Q&A, one of the, the presenters um, they were asked a question. I can't remember what the question was, but her first response was, I think one of the purposes of art is to help us feel that we are not alone. Art by no one can never give you that feeling. Whereas a song, a painting, uh, a play, um, even a, a well-crafted video game can make you feel seen in a very valuable way to realize you're not alone on this planet in your struggles, um, in your search for meaning, um, in your joys. Uh, and I think that it's, it's real art is the sort of thing that can shine a light on that, maybe in challenging ways, as, as Grimes points out, but it's not, that's not the primary purpose of it. 
Um, the primary purpose is to show us um, this this amazing reality of beauty that not only are we not alone in terms of other people, but there is the one, the good, the beautiful, there's God himself who fashioned all of us in his image. Um, and we're going to see God through real and true art. So what I love about Grimes here, and I don't want to take the statement too seriously because sure. she's amazing at kind of walking this line between earnestness and irony. And here you never quite can tell. I agree with Dylan about kind of the purpose of art more broadly. What we're really reacting here is not kind of an artistic work, but a change in technology that will then impact art. So if we think about the changes of art between um, before and after the invention of photography, right? Before there was realism and the kind of ability to recreate someone's face was very valuable to kind of artistic works and having a family portrait, that kind of thing. And then all of a sudden, photography happened as a new technology, and artists really had to grapple with, what am I doing now? So we have movements like Impressionism and Post-Impressionism that are trying to kind of imbue the essence of something, give this painting something that photography cannot do. So that was the kind of, that artistic movement is partially fueled by a change in technology. So... Uh, kind of parallel to now, we see a change in technology, which all of a sudden we can create kind of these uh, realistic or uh, design uh, kind of <clears throat> renderings really quickly. It's going to displace certain things that artists do. If you tell an artist, hey, create this aesthetic, probably the AI generative art can do it better. So what will be the reaction now in art is a really interesting question. And I think my kind of first guess at that would be having something to do with the human story kind of connection. Artists who thrive will be able to tell a story that has kind of a root and a something about the human condition that a non-human um, art from no one to no one cannot do. One of the interesting things about this Grimes response and the part that I skipped over and that we'll wrap up this, seg this segment with, we have one more segment to go, is that she describes this technology in very human terms when she says it's trapped in a cage, trained to make beautiful things, and then battered into gaslighting humankind about our intentions towards each other. <laughs> and with that, we turn from the world of science fiction and fantasy to the world of science fiction and fantasy. <laughs> the Hugo Awards, which are long been celebrated as sort of the premier awards of the science fiction and fantasy genres, they are meshed in a controversy. And this controversy has been enrolling for months. And there have been recent developments last week confirming uh, the worst suspicions that many people had. So to set the stage... In January of 2024, the voting statistics for the Hugo Awards, which was held in Chengdu, China, came into question after several authors were declared ineligible without explanation. These included very, very prominent authors like Neil Gaiman, R.F. Kwan, uh, Jay Zhao, and uh, Paul Weimer. Uh, what came to light earlier this week was that leaked emails revealed that these authors were excluded due to the actions of Hugo Award administrators uh, who sort of self-censored, thinking that these authors um, 
would cause a scandal to their uh, to their Chinese hosts uh, if they were to win the award. Uh, based on complaints, uh, there have been a series of resignations, recalibrating the award. There's a lot of ins and outs to this story, and it and it doesn't even start what happens when happens on the award floor itself. Adam uh, Morgan, writing in Esquire magazine, and we'll link this to the show notes, writes about how even the location may have been the product of tampering. So the Hugo Awards are very democratic awards. Anyone who is a member of the society which they're affiliated with, which runs them, can vote not only for awards, but for the location of next year's Hugo Awards. And... In 2021, the voting process – this is, uh, this is uh, Adam Morgan in Esquire. He writes, in 2021, the voting process to select the host city for 2023 convention became a lightning rod for conspiracy theories. Each year, anyone who purchases a membership in the World Science Fiction Society can vote on where Worldcon will be held two years later. In 2021, voters could choose between Chengdu and Winnipeg, uh, Manitoba, for the 2023 convention. There were concerns that a couple of thousand people from China purchased memberships in the World Science Fiction Society that year to vote for Chenggang, says Jason Sanford, a three-time Hugo finalist. It was unusual, but it was done under the rules, end quote. While Sanford welcomed the participation of new Chinese fans, other people were alarmed that many of the Chinese votes from Chengdu were written in the same handwriting and posted from the same mailing address. And we're just going to leave it there and we're going to throw this open. This is an award that's very influential. Years and years ago, I got a list of all the Hugo Award winners and I started checking, just going through, reading it. And it's really exceptional how well many of its selections hold up. I think it's much more consistent in, a, in its evaluation of talent than something like the Academy Awards, um, which, you know, sometimes you go back in te- you know 10 years ago and you're like, why did they pick that one? With the Hugos, it's very prestigious and is almost always on. But this, this is devastating to the credibility of the organization. And um, it gives pause, again, to sort of what are the costs to engaging China in the 21st century? Uh, Dylan, what are your thoughts? So I I have at least two points of interest here. Uh, One is the way this came about, as you mentioned. Now, apparently there may have been actual fraud in the voting, but even if there wasn't, you know, the CCP could have just flooded the previous year's convention with operatives to vote. Because as you mentioned, it's very democratic. It's the fans show up and they vote, uh, which to me is a very great object lesson in the problems with direct democracy. Um, it just does not work as people imagine it would. And for anyone who might have some idealism left about this, um, I am going to turn 40 this year, which means that I was uh, 
in middle school, I believe, when MTV finally brought back music videos in the form of a program hosted by Carson Daly called Total Request Live. And it was, in the one sense, a step in a positive direction for MTV, which people had been making fun of forever. All they have is the real world now, and we never get to see any music videos. Well, now they brought back music videos prime time right after school uh, so all the teenagers could watch. But it was call in, and whichever ones get the most votes, you know, whatever the most requests, those are going to be the top 10 videos that we play. And what we saw was basically 10 to 20 artists have their videos played again and again and again and again. And within a few years, all we were seeing was Limp Bizkit and Kid Rock and NSYNC and Britney Spears. And some of those are fine. I'm not necessarily criticizing them. Um, but what we lost, and to give you an example, there's a band um, to, to really put my nerd creds on the table, a band called Jimmy World. Uh, they have a cult classic album called Clarity. And there's a song on that album uh, where there's the lyric, open the request lines, right? Let, let, you know, let selection kill the old. The idea being that you have this tyrannical DJ who is choosing what people listen to. Um, but the people, they all know what they want to listen to. And why don't you just have more open request time so that they can call in and say, I want to hear Jimmy Eat World, you know, or whatever. Jimmy Eat World, it turns out, had a very successful music career, still around. Hopefully you've heard of them. But they were completely wrong in that song about how it would go. And we saw that with Total Request Live. It was the absolute watering down of what are you going to hear uh, on the radio? How are you going to discover new music? It was not going to come from MTV as it did in the 1980s, for example, when that's about all they had going for them was, I guess we'll just, what new video do we got? We'll just put it up there. It's poorly created. It's, you know, but it's an interesting song and it's something new for people to see and they would just throw it up and people would actually encounter new music that way. Um, similarly, uh, you have this voting method that is so easy to manipulate. Um, and that's true of any direct democracy. Now, the, the, the smaller it is, uh, the better, but that's not, you're already getting into constitutional sort of manipulation if you're going to change the sort of scope, who's allowed, um, how many people are allowed, all this sort of stuff um, needs to be thought through. Um, and, th and this was the way the fraud was perpetrated. Is yes. It wasn't, it was, it was that certain authors were disqualified after the first round of voting and simply never appeared on yep. the second round ballots. And when months later... This was voting information was finally released. It showed that those people should have been eligible to be on the second round ballot, but were inexplicably ruled yeah. ineligible. Now, the other side to this, which I do think is is great, and it's an important counterbalance to everything I just said uh, about direct democracy being bad, is that free markets are good. Uh, the way free markets work uh, is that people buy stuff they want and they don't buy stuff they don't want. Uh, and that includes things like whether or not people will continue to want a Hugo Award. Uh, at least one of the winners, I can't remember their name, uh, but they've come out and said they are not going to list their 2023 win. So, I mean, as you mentioned, this is like an incredibly prestigious list. It puts them in the ranks of, you know, Heinlein and, and uh, Herbert and, you know, all these like classic science fiction authors. On their next book, on the dust jacket, when you look at their bio, it's not going to say, you know, John Smith is a Hugo Award winning author, even though he is. 
because he doesn't want to be associated with this. And this is one of the mistakes you find uh, in especially communist and authoritarian regimes. Uh, to get back to our previous point about art, um, art is something that, uh, to, you know, to some degree, everybody tries to re- restrict it, but very much so in totalitarian regimes. Yes. Uh, and, um, you know, this was true in the Soviet Union, it's true in communist China, but really, for the most part, our politics, we just don't care what artists do or don't do or whether nobody is making art, <laughs> as the case may be. Um, it's not worth the political time and effort. Well, I want to bring this back to kind of the conference organizers because there is kind of a virtue element that's just missing in how they ran this whole, you know, event and uh, the choosing the winners. I mean, it's a really cool way that they've chosen them. And, Dan, you talked about how successful it's been. Uh there's a lack of prudence in allowing a city in China to be a finalist chosen kind of by uh, their kind of general pool because that kind of paints you into to a corner for what you can allow for science fiction, which is historically a great genre for kind of poking holes in authoritarian regimes and calling things out. And that's one of the most exciting things about the genre. Well, it was imprudent to allow that to be a top two. And then once they actually got to choosing the finalists, these emails are just absolutely embarrassing, the total lack of courage or any sort of moral fortitude to be able to stand up against. We, we don't know yet whether there was any sort of CCP, hey, you need to censor these things. They seem to just kind of yeah. guess, oh, what's going to be offensive? Okay, we won't mention Tibet. We won't mention these things. There's a hilarious interchange uh, with Paul Weimar, who is uh, kind of the – uh, he writes a lot of fan uh, art and uh, kind of – and so he – they censored him and removed him from the list because they said he visited Tibet. Well, he said, I, I never actually visited Tibet. I went to Nepal. Like this is the most kind of – just kind of petty, incompetent bureaucracy that they created where they didn't really even know but they looked at people's Twitter files and then kind of – guessed what would be offensive to some sort of CCP. So it's really embarrassing. The kind of glimmer of hope for next year is, okay, there's a ton of people who resigned. Great. They should all resign. And then it's a lot of volunteers who run the organization and run this event every year. So maybe we'll just have new volunteers who are really passionate about uh, voting and creating a great event. And then next year, there'll be kind of a pivot and a little bit more kind of knowledge of we got to be careful here where we put this thing if we really want it to be about what's great about this genre. And the Next mar- year it will be in Scotland. Okay. The market feedback has put in check the direct democracy, I think, pretty well. <laughs> Although we'll see. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look at the show notes for a link to where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find the program. Thanks to Dylan. Thanks to Noah. For the Acton Institute, I'm Dan Huger. We'll see you next week. As Limp Biscuit says, we're rolling, 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 <laughs> rolling. <laughs>